So Russia announced it will conduct business in Asia, Africa, and Latin America in Chinese currency. Brazil, which has a brand new government supported by the Biden administration, announced it will do the same thing. Brazil, largest economy in the hemisphere after ours. I mean that the dollar's relationship to the world and its position in the international economic order uh, are at the core of what makes the U.S. economy work in its current environment. I think it should be understood that the Russian and Chinese opinion on these matters is, uh, in my view, very different to the heart of why the global macroeconomic impacts of Russia's first invasion in 2014 were relatively limited, um, whereas the macroeconomic impact of the invasion in 2022 was so large. It's happening around the world and all of it is shutting out the U.S. dollar. Maximilian has a Central Asia Fellow in the Eurasia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and founder of the London-based Political Risk Enma Advisory. You're an author of Economic War, Ukraine, the Global Conflict Between Russia and the West. Your research focuses on the relationship between trade, debt, international relations, and foreign policy as well as the overlap between political and economic networks. Welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to our conversation today. I'm really looking forward to it as well. Uh, as people can see from the title, we're talking about what has been known as the death of the U.S. dollar. And I guess there's no better way to jump into it today than saying, what is the power of the U.S. dollar? And what are people referring to when they say that it is we're entering the era of the death of the U.S. dollar? Great. Well, firstly, I would say that the power of the U.S. dollar is really at the core of uh, the U.S.'s foreign and economic policies. So two of uh, perhaps our most important uh, policy spheres. Um, and that in, in those cases, when I say it's at the core of them, I mean it is even more important on the foreign and defense side uh, than, say, um, uh military spending purely. And when I say it's even um, more important on the economic side, I mean that the dollar's relationship to the world and its position in the international economic order uh, are at the core of what makes the U.S. economy work in its current environment, what makes the U.S. Um, able to, and some would argue need to, uh, run substantial deficits, um, which of course uh, many people complain about, but have, you know, real abilities to increase U.S. spending uh, beyond purely what we have uh, in our pockets today. And I think that's where it's really important to understand the power of money and particularly credit over time, right? Most people can think of uh, a mortgage, right? It's an easy way to conceptualize it. Um, you can buy a house with more money than you have uh, to hand right now with a mortgage because it's believed you have good credit and the ability to repay that, and that then multiplies your spending power. Governments have the same, essentially, with their borrowing power, um, but it is you know even greater and on a far larger scale than sort of uh, any one mortgage. Um, and then, you know, sort of from a foreign policy perspective, because the U.S. dollar is not only, which people usually mean when they talk about sort of its role, it's the global reserve currency, it's used in about 60% of uh, global reserves held by governments around the world, um, but it's also far larger in terms of trade invoicing, around uh, a higher percentage of Global trade invoices are denominated in dollars, excluding Europe, um, which where the euro really dominates. It's around 90%. Um, and then it is also the 
primary currency for financial instruments around the world. Um, so although the dollar uh, is a U.S. currency and its use brings things under the U.S. purview, granting a geopolitical strength such as the applicability of sanctions and then secondary sanctions threats, um, which I'm happy to talk about more later, um, giving the U.S. sort of a what's known as an extraterritorial use uh, of those tools. But plenty of other markets around the world effectively create dollars. Dollars created when a bank issues a loan, uh, for example, uh, and the dollar is still the dominant currency in those around the world. Um, I take the view that the U.S. is uh, remarkably well positioned in this and that I uh, think that, you know, the greatest threats to dollar hegemony are largely from within, um, but it is certainly being challenged over the long term by China uh, and in the short term, albeit far less successfully, uh, by Russia. And they have different aims in that, um, but the Russians in particular have seen uh, how useful uh, the dollar is to the U.S., at least in achieving its foreign policy goals, and how much of a hindrance it is to a country looking to overthrow the international order, not only its economic components, but um, other key components, as we see in the invasion of Ukraine uh, as well, and where dollar dominance is really perhaps one of the greater Russian challenges uh, to doing so. What are some of the instruments that we're seeing utilized by some of these foreign entities right off the bat that are being used to kind of challenge the U.S. dollar, mainly with Russia. And I, I know, as you said, with China, we'll get into that a little bit. There, there's a longer, more strategic kind of approach to that. But for Russia specifically, what have we seen in the Ukraine war and from Russia to challenge U.S. supremacy? So um, I challenge a lot. I, I draw a lot of the history in the beginning of the uh, Russian-U.S. economic conflict um, back to a very technical development in 2013. Uh, I'll start with that because I think it's important to you to understand how well the Russians understand the system, um, also how robust it is, and then from there how much they've sort of spread. Um, but the Kremlin has long chafed at sanctions, uh, and U.S. sanctions in particular are effective, as I mentioned earlier, because of this extraterritoriality component, because banks that use dollars, which are pretty much every major bank, around the world uh, have to comply with U.S. sanctions because of the U.S. view that anything involving a dollar brings it under its jurisdiction. Um, uh, so those have really began, and the Russians have long seen that as uh, effectively uh, an affront and a challenge. And a lot of this can be traced back to 2012 with the passage of what was known as the Global Magnitsky Act as part of a bill actually meant to remove old Soviet-era sanctions on Russia, but introducing these sanctions on a few, uh, only a handful of Kremlin cronies who had been involved in the expropriation of an investment management business uh, called Hermitage Capital, um, on, uh, run by uh, an investor named Bill Browder, who's since written a number of very well-received books, including Red Notice, the story of this, um, and then one of whose lawyers was killed uh, in Kremlin custody um, while being mistreated. And so he lobbied in Washington to have certain sanctions introduced on that, which were really just a response measure to his mistreatment. Um, but as part of the larger geopolitical um, tensions that were going on and sort of the failure of the reset and the emergent conflict over Ukraine, um, Putin really saw this as an affront and as sort of an abuse of the U.S.'s uh, position atop the international economic order. Um, and the Kremlin responded by in 2013 when the revolution was ongoing in Ukraine and 
demonstrators in Ukraine were seeking to uh, oust uh, Viktor Yanukovych, the pro-Russian president uh, at the time, uh, particularly over his uh, extreme corruption. And I spent a lot of time uh, in Ukraine uh, there, including on the Maidan, and it was a fascinating thing to see for myself. But one of the uh, key sort of developments in that was that while he was trying to hold on to power roughly six weeks before he was ousted, or eight weeks before he was ousted, apologies, um, Yanukovych went to Moscow, incidentally on the day that the first demonstrator uh, was killed by security forces in Kiev, uh, and signed a bailout agreement for the Kremlin to lend Ukraine $15 billion. Um, only $3 billion of the loan ever changed hands, but what was so unique about it was that it was an intergovernmental loan structured as a private market loan. And um, if this is something you're interested in, we can certainly discuss it more, but it gets into the real technicalities of government and sovereign finance. And the easiest point to sort of make there and digestible is that there is a different market for how a government um, adjusts and restructures its debts. There's no bankruptcy court for states, right? Um, but occasionally countries get into debt trouble. And first they restructure the debt the debts they owe to other governments, and then on the basis of that, on what are known as net present value terms, um, private creditors who have lent the government money uh, have to accept a restructuring, um, at least on the same net present value terms, um, but often involving sort of more direct haircuts, sometimes higher interest rates. But these are two separate processes, but conjoined ones. Uh, where China falls into that, for example, has been at the heart of a lot of debt disputes since. It wants all its um, loans treated well way um, as commercial loans, not as conditional loans that should uh, be treated differently, uh, whereas the rest of the sort of international debtor community, and particularly in the West, wants Chinese debts treated the same as everybody else's. But Russia's wasn't about ensuring that it could be treated differently or treated more beneficially. These loans were structured to include a number of clauses that would give the Kremlin leverage over Ukraine um, in the future, including what was known as a no-offset clause, that other debts couldn't be offset against it, that it could force Ukraine into rapid repayment if its debt-to-GDP ratio um, exceeded a very low bar, and a handful of other measures there. Uh, these bonds tend to be written under New York or English law. In this case, it was uh, under English law. Um, so this is really using a Western financial instrument to try to gain um, leverage over Ukraine and potentially to be able to block its restructuring and future um, both government and private creditor aid in the case that uh, it sort of went against it. And this was the Kremlin really trying to use the international economic order to its own advantage. Um, however, the strategy failed um, because a year later, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, adjusted its rules in something that they say wasn't political, but um, I always point out that they put out the press release in two languages, English and Russian, and Russian isn't a normal language that uh, the IMF puts out its press releases in, um, or at least when it does, it's in multiple other ones as well. Um, and uh, so they sort of uh, had adjusted their rules, allowing doing something that's called lending in arrears to a country uh, that it was technically behind on payments to official creditors. Um, the Kremlin was, you know, really outraged about this. Um, but at the same time, in, in between, you know, the revolution in Ukraine had succeeded. Russia had uh, begun its first invasion and taken Crimea uh, and invaded in the Donbass in the east as well. Um, but uh, the U.S. responded to that with real sanctions, also ones that crucially targeted the credit markets, what were known as sectoral sanctions, ultimately introduced by Europe as well, if slightly less um, wide-reaching. And this 
these barred loaning to uh, loans to Russian companies who are named. So Gazprom and the Rosneft, the Russian state, um, gas and oil companies were affected in slightly different ways, but they went from being huge borrowers on Western private debt markets to rapidly seeing that decrease, and in Rosneft's case in particular, um, all but cut off entirely. Uh, the Kremlin then responded by really taking its um, economic agenda internationally and looking to do a whole bunch of other uh, efforts to try to destabilize the dollar system or to challenge it, both in the short term and the long term. And these had a very mixed track record, uh, you know, sort of the um, one of the sexier ones or ones that, you know, um, uh, is kind of more out there, if you ask me, was an attempt to help Venezuela create its own cryptocurrency uh, called El Petro that collapsed. Others were involved in ensuring Russia had access to sufficient gold assets and at least debating um, potentially moving Russia to a gold-based system rather than a dollar-based system. That involved Wagner, the private military company, taking over gold mines in many African countries, uh, as well as debates in the Kremlin about moving to a gold ruble that never actually went anywhere. Um, for uh, reasons we can discuss later, I don't think a gold standard system is feasible um, in the current environment, but as well as real crucial building new alliances uh, in the energy sphere that would give uh, Russia more leverage in the future, and in particular, oil plays a very large role um, in the dollar system. I think it's slightly less important now, but historically, the petrodollar uh, and sort of the use of dollars by the rich Gulf countries has often been a large uh, factor in this. But Putin, of course, went and signed, created, helped create OPEC Plus with the Saudis. You know, a lot of people forget that the day after Trump uh, was in Saudi Arabia for his, you know, quite ridiculous sword dancing and orb touching first foreign visit in 2017 that MBS actually the next day went off and, and visited Putin in the Kremlin uh, and was already sort of playing both sides, um, but as well as some real successes in gaining leverage over that in Europe, um, both driving wedges in between sanctions and ensuring European sanctions were less wide reaching as well as building um, Nord Stream 2, gaining more control of refineries in Germany and elsewhere, crucially in India as well, um, ones that had less of an immediate challenge to the dollar system, but were meant to insulate the Kremlin um, or at least raise the costs to the U.S. and to other Western partners of imposing the kind of major sanctions on Russia. Uh, I think it's worth, you know, pausing there for a minute um, and, and we can discuss later how this conflict uh, escalated after uh, 2022 and sort of the major steps taken um, by the West, in particular in response to Russia's invasion, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine then. Um, but that gets to the heart of and sort of that difference and that buildup in international competition gets to the heart of why the global macroeconomic impacts of Russia's first invasion in 2014 were relatively limited, um, whereas the macroeconomic impact of the invasion in 2022 was large. What is going on, guys? Just wanted to take a quick break and thank you guys for all the support you've been showing the channels lately, whether it be on Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, or whatever other platform you might be listening on. The support you guys have shown the Aftermath daily has been tremendous, so thank you. And in an effort to continue that support, if you're enjoying the episode thus far, please do me and the channel a massive favor by leaving it a five-star review if you're on a platform like Spotify or Apple Music, or if you're on YouTube, leave the video a like and subscribe. Each review goes a long way and helps the podcast and the brand continue to grow. And finally, if you guys are curious about any of our social media platforms, make sure to check out the description below. And with that, let's see if BRICS is the group to challenge U.S. dollar supremacy.
So let's get right into BRICS as well, because you mentioned OPEC Plus, and I think that's kind of, they almost go hand in hand. But in a lot of ways, we've seen that spiral effect happen, especially over the past couple months, years since the 2022 invasion. And I think for the American people, if they were to immediately be able to point at an economic area where they could see a massive spike, it's in oil prices. A lot of that comes down to the relationship with OPEC plus, but as well as we have countries within BRICS calling to create their own currency. Uh, I know Brazil was, was quoting that just, just recently. How do you see a BRICS currency? Is it a threat to the US dollar? Do you see, how do you see BRICS kind of navigating in the, the economic environment that's developing over the past year since that invasion? Um, I mean, firstly, to talk about the core of BRICS, which is Russia and China there, you know, of course, in February of 2022, just before the invasion, they declared what's called a friendship without limits. Um, I think that the last year and a half have very much proven the case that there are real limits there. Um, and that speaks to a lot of the issues within the BRICS alliance uh, or BRICS partnership, whatever you want to call it. It's not a formal structure uh, more broadly, right? There is still uh, unarmed, but, you know, physical clashes occasionally in the Himalayas uh, between um, Chinese and Indian soldiers. These countries all have um, a lot of geopolitical differences, even if they all and to one extent or another, chafe at the rise of the U.S. But India, uh, in particular, is of course you know more concerned about China and has moved to um, improve its relations uh, with the United States, and that's something that gained support both from the BJP of. Um, the current uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, as well as the Congress opposition in India. Um, so I think there's a lot of uh, over-assumption about BRICS's strength and uh, unity, right? The three things Putin has wanted from China throughout this war are a new gas pipeline deal uh, to replace some of the European markets, something they've been discussing since before the war, uh, loans to replace the lack of access to Western credit markets, uh, and then finally, um, also um, direct Chinese military support and hasn't received any of that. Uh, Russia, even just this weekend, you know, it was reported um, that Russian banks are being restricted on their ability to send Chinese currency to China and from there on to Western uh, banks, in part because some of those Chinese banks are likely worried about U.S. Uh, sanctions uh, threats. Potentially, that's also connected to Blinken's uh, visit um, over the last uh, few days. Um, that has also, you know, sort of been aimed at trying to lower tensions between the U.S. and China. Um, but, you know, back to BRICS itself, fundamentally, I think it's important to understand that BRICS faces a real challenge in that all the countries mentioned in the BRICS acronym, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, um, are uh, countries that run substantial surpluses, right? They export more um, than they import. Um, so effectively, what they have is a glut of savings and a need to invest it in somewhere that they can earn a return in a stable credit market. Uh, none of them offer that. China is probably large enough, even though it too runs surpluses, to at least offer it somewhat, but it has capital control, so you can't move your money freely in and out of China, um, which, of course, with you know countries that have tensions there is going to be uh, a real issue, right? You know, India may occasionally have its disagreements with the U.S., but it always knows um, that it can move its money in and out, and certainly that, that is highly un uh, unlikely to change unless it takes um, you know, the kind of action um, that, that gets it sanctioned in the way Russia has, which um, is, is hard to foresee. Um, 
So, uh, you know, without sort of access to a deficit market for those investments, it's really hard for uh, a BRICS currency and a BRICS debt market to uh, exist. And this gets to, you know, a really important point, which is that a instrument of debt in a currency and an instrument of, of that currency um, are broadly one and the same thing, right? So just to make it easier for listeners, we'll talk about U.S. dollars and treasury bills. Um, a U.S. dollar is a debt, right? It says on the back there, you know, guaranteed by the Federal Reserve and, you know, tradable. Um, of course, you can no longer get gold for it as, you know, you used to be able to um, uh, in, in the early Bretton Woods era, um, but that that instrument is essentially exchangeable for a claim on uh, the U.S. government. Um, and so as governments change their interest rates, the values of those claims uh, go up and down um, with them. But really debt and dollars um, or, or debt and any currency of that same debt are really interfungible instruments. Um, and by having your currency become accepted and be used as the um, instrument of account and instrument of trade uh, in both trade and finance and transactions, you increase uh, demand for it and you sort of. Uh, in an ideal world, then for a BRICS currency, for example, you'd make it so that um, that currency can effectively operate without U.S. Um, uh, ability to interfere and to threaten sanctions, right? Um, and I think the best example to do this is um, to look at the euro, right? Uh, in Europe, most European financing and most European trade is now invoiced in euros um, rather than in dollars. But because the European banking system uh, is so connected to the U.S. banking system, they borrow from one another, you have... Um, many dollar transactions and occasionally euro transactions into the U.S. Uh, that go back between one and the other, even though the euro is standalone uh, because the political system that exists in um, is allied with the U.S. and has deep uh, economic uh, linkages there, um, uh, even though the U.S. dollar isn't doesn't display the elements of global reserve currency or trade currency that make it so powerful elsewhere, um, that that makes it not really a threat to the dollar system. For the BRICS currency to be able to do that, um, it would not only need to exist in those countries, it would need a deficit market to invest it in, so potentially Europe. It's one other very large deficit market um, other than the U.S. and the world, but I think the last uh, year and a half as a result of Russia's invasion has pushed Europe very much back into the American camp, and when certain European leaders like uh, French President Emmanuel Macron talk about flirting more with China. Uh, there tends to be a vociferal reaction against it. Um, uh, and then, you know, finally also just that, uh, you know, for China uh, in particular, which would be the core of the system right now, it uses treasury bills as its core reserve instrument in its own banking system. So to actually change and to get away uh, from the dollar in any kind of short-term horizon would uh, have substantial risks for China as well. So people often talk about, okay, if we end up in an economic war with Beijing, as, as occurred with Russia, they can just dump their treasury holdings and, you know, essentially uh, the market won't be large enough to pick those up and then there will be too much U.S. debt out there with not enough buyers and this will break the U.S. economy. And I certainly believe that would break the U.S. economy, um, but it would also break the Chinese economy unless you had a BRICS currency established and built to replace it, uh, as well as a debt market. And that would need to exist for years and years and years and move China away from trade uh, with the United States. So, um, you know, I'm a Russia watcher. I speak Russian. I spent a lot of time in the region. I uh, particularly try to understand its uh, economic agenda and its um, 
path in these. Uh, I don't claim to have that same kind of knowledge in China. I do see China as having a longer term uh, strategy for this, but also one that evidences to me that they're uh, wise enough not to think that a BRICS currency could be some kind of um, quick solution. You may see BRICS debt instruments kind of built up and sort of a BRICS equivalent to um, what are known as special drawing rights by the IMF, potentially through what's called the New Development Bank, which should be known as the uh, BRICS Bank. Uh, but even there, we see, you know, real fundamental issues. The Wall Street Journal had a good report this last week on the challenges of the New Development Bank and the fact that it itself depends on dollars, right? And, you know, China, when it loans in its Belt and Road program tends to loan in dollars. Um, and then the fact that, you know, getting into some of those inter-alliance issues there, although Moscow is a capital contributing member of that bank, um, uh, its loans in Russia have been suspended since um, the full-scale invasion last February uh, as well, because that bank doesn't want to encounter the, the U.S. risk. Um, so China and the U.S. may be diverging um, politically uh, at an extremely rapid pace and probably have been since at least 2016, um, but those economic interdependencies uh, exist there. And for China, I think it's um, far more the framework to look at it in terms of competition is uh, one of mutually assured destruction and sort of the deterrent factor that that has for both the U.S. and China and taking major uh, international economic action, whereas uh, in Russia's case, it is, you know, fighting a battle on the economic front that it can't win, um, just like it's fighting a battle that increasingly looks like it can't win uh, in Ukraine as well. But uh, in both cases, the um, continued cohesion, support, and uh, resilience of the Western alliance, uh, if that fails, um, then uh, Russia's prospects on both fronts uh, could potentially be uh, a lot rosier. So let's flip focus back to the United States. We focused on a lot of foreign entities here. I think the biggest controversy we've seen over the past couple of weeks would be, of course, the U.S. debt limit, which there was a ping pong match between Republicans and Democrats about if that was going to be raised. And then, you know, just recently after being raised, we've already hit the $32 trillion mark. So the U.S. debt limit has been, and the U.S. debt crisis in itself has been a very controversial topic. How do you see that as a threat to the U.S. dollar, to U.S. supremacy? And how are we positioning ourselves by having this constant, like I was saying, a ping pong match in terms of how we actually want to handle the debt? I mean, uh, you know, the most immediate threat from it, right, was that, you know, failure to pass uh, the debt ceiling limit, whether this time or the next time around in two years or in the various, you know, 60 plus fights that have been had over this over the decades, um, would be that it would cause a short term default, right? And then that may very well cause, um, banks uh, and financiers and trade um, credit suppliers around the world uh, to no longer want to use the U.S. dollar uh, as their instrument of account um, and reserve instrument, um, which would, as we discussed earlier, have real negative implications for the U.S.'s ability to enact its foreign policy, whether that be uh, on sanctions or on economic relations with other countries. Um, so, you know, the, <laughs> there is zero benefit, in my view, to a default, no matter how technical it is. Um, I don't think that a short-term technical default that was cured within days uh, would necessarily completely undermine the U.S. system, uh, but it would certainly accelerate um, any calls for a uh, move away from it, as well as create um, economic incentives for um, uh, third countries and, and, and financial institutions outside the U.S. Um, to move away from it. Uh, but secondly, I think it, you know, it's sort of 
really speaks to the deep misunderstanding we have of a lot of these issues in the United States is was that we, we tend to talk about the government's balance sheet and the government's debt as if it's a household, right? So I used the mortgage example earlier, and people often talk about, oh, well, you know, we can't live beyond our means and so on and so forth. And really, I think that's a you know, a, a, a gross miscomparison, misunderstanding of the role of U.S. Um, debt in, in the world economy. Uh, you know, if, if you think about it in terms of demand and supply of the U.S. debt, the supply goes up every time um, that uh, we borrow more, that the U.S. deficit grows. But really the question is, is how large is the demand out there um, in the world for uh, U.S. dollar assets? And in my view, that continues to grow uh, pretty steadily in global global globalization and global trade because of the amount of financing um, that's done in U.S. dollars, as we discussed earlier, means that there's a pretty insatiable global appetite um, for U.S. treasuries. We have occasionally seen some technical issues with um, sort of short-term treasury borrowing. We have a lot of um, questions that I think are important for macroeconomists and uh, international political economists to look at and to try to understand how much that is out there. Um, but really on sort of the, you know, the overall level, I, I don't think that the issue is that there's too much debt out there in the world and in uh, U.S. debt. And in some cases, it, it may be even that there's too little. Um, and then you have to think about it, you know, if um, the bank, uh, you know, the, there's the famous quote, right? You know, if you uh, owe the bank a million dollars, that's your problem. If you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, that's the bank's problem. Um, that's kind of the case for the U.S. dollar in the world, right? You know, we owe uh, trillions out there um, around the world, but because of how central the U.S. dollar is, um, that's kind of less the U.S.'s problem and more the rest of the world's problem. And we gain um, this exorbitant, what's known as exorbitant privilege and the ability to um, borrow and, and um finance growth in times of difficulties. So, uh, you know, what we should have done probably in the aftermath of the global financial crisis was borrow more, not less, um, to, you know, engage in counter-cyclical policy and to have sped up um, the recovery from that. We saw that is the policy path that was chosen after COVID. You know, we saw how much borrowing um, increased to, uh, you know, fund a whole range of programs and now is continuing with um, the desire to, uh, you know, fund things like the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, you know, our ability to borrow is in many ways uh, our superpower rather than um, a, a curse and a drain um, on, on the U.S. And it, it's not living beyond our means. It's, um, you know, uh, using the full benefit of our position in the international economy uh, for um U.S. taxpayers and U.S. voters, uh, and if we can uh, use that to borrow and, and, and um, engage in countercyclical uh, uh, policy to try to keep recessions short and shallow, then uh, it seems to me that it behooves us to do so um, rather than to engage in nonsense uh, like these debt ceiling debates, which, of course, you know, the debt ceiling debate, you know, may have been, been um, agreed a new short-term borrowing limit and the like, but these will all be blown through in um, you know future congressional defense um, and budget um, uh, authorizations, and so it's not like any um, you know one of these uh, debt ceiling debates ever has actually stopped uh, the overall increase in in, in U.S. Um, borrowing.
and their large majority share in U.S. debt and talking about it, it's a bit of a mutually assured destruction. If either side decides to almost dump it, it ends up with, with you know, an economic crisis for both. But we've seen China slowly scaling in the U.S. in terms of their real estate holding and their equity holding and a lot of companies. How do you see that having an effect on the U.S. dollar? Is it is it minimal or is there even or is China kind of playing a long game there where they know having their hands in a lot of these different assets that are U.S. bound allows them to have a little bit more influence over the U.S. dollar? So um, I don't think it gives China um, particular influence over uh, the U.S. dollar. Um, you know, there are those economists who, you know, will focus on uh, the current and the capital accounts of trade and, you know, China using its surpluses to uh, increase claims on, on the U.S. and increase ownership um, of assets. Uh, I think a lot more of where the attention is around now and rightfully deserves to be politically is around, you know, investment in sensitive um, and uh, important technologies of the future for economic competition. So, you know, you see a lot of this around technology uh, and, you know, um, computer processing uh, in particular. Um, but, you know, whether China owns, uh, you know, chain of hotels in the U.S. or not um, is uh, in my view, you know, relatively unimportant to the overall currency competition, um, other than to say, you know, the more that China is cross-invested into the U.S., um, and the more those investments are held by genuine private investors, which, you know, is often not the case, and um, I'll sort of refrain from commenting too much on what I don't know, that increases, you know, the costs of uh, interdependence to um, Beijing itself, right? Um, you know, Chinese uh, investors won't want to see China taking hostile um, action that could uh, affect their own investments. But, you know, that's a key lesson that we had from uh, Russia in particular, which is people thought about, you know, economic interdependence, particularly in, in uh, Germany, um, where my family is, you know, there's a lot of discussion and uh, debate around, oh, well, you know, if the, you know, we buy gas from Russia and they buy our cars and therefore, you know, we won't need to, uh, we won't want to go to war with each other because it'll be in everybody's um, negative interest. And like for Germany, that's true where you have, you know, democratic mechanisms that respond, but in Russia where it doesn't matter how badly the economy does, you know, um, what goes is what Putin says, um, that sort of interdependence and the ability of that to um, build up a buffer against kinetic or economic conflict is much less in uh, non-democratic uh, states. So I would say that, you know, uh, we shouldn't think about interdependence with China as something that will necessarily um, uh, effectively mitigate its aggression, um, although a lot of that, of course, depends on where you stand on, you know, how uh, similar to Putin uh, Xi Jinping is, and, and I'm probably not the right person to answer that. Question. Yeah, I've had a lot of different people on the podcast talking about China and you know, what is the likelihood we're looking with Taiwan, and I think that's kind of a good, you know, segue for, we talked about sanctions, a good portion of this, and obviously sanctions have been a big part of U.S. foreign policy, being able to, you know, in ways manipulate what we're seeing in a lot of the conflicts around the world. One of the theories that I've heard many times and that myself, I personally could see it having a lot of merit is that this is less about a total overhaul of the U S dollar and more so reducing the string, the sting of inflate or of sanctions for countries like China in the case of a possible invasion of Taiwan 
or something similar to that, similar to the process that we've seen Russia undergo due to U.S. sanctions. So do you see that holding any water? And do you see some of the, I guess, plays that we're seeing out by these foreign entities movement towards something like that? You know, they're, they're very interrelated because U.S. sanctions, um, you know, what, what makes them so effective and makes them so much, um, and I'll get back to the effective bit in a minute, um, what makes them, um, you, you know, so much more powerful than other countries' sanctions is the um, the role of the U.S. dollar, which grants them an extraterritoriality, which, you know, if Britain puts you on the sanctions list, you can get around existing in the world without ever touching uh, British pounds. Um, but it's very, very hard to exist anywhere in the world from crypto markets to, um, you know, a, a trading market in, in Western China uh, without at some point dealing um, with the U.S. dollar. Uh, I think that, you know, a, while I think the sanctions against Russia are not only more than just, but are likely to prove effective in the long run, um, there are real misunderstandings uh, around sanctions in particular. There's a sort of unresolved policy debate that we have in the United States, um, which is that people often use sanctions or believe that sanctions can be used as a deterrent tool, right? Threaten sanctions against China if it invades Taiwan, and then they won't invade Taiwan. Um, in my view, sanctions don't really work as a deterrent tool, and you know, we can discuss the political science of that if you want, but I think the um, evidence is pretty strong. But what sanctions, where they really do work and where they are effective, um, is as a tool for targeting state capacity, right? So, um, you know, uh, Cuba has been under sanctions for decades and it hasn't deterred their government from pursuing the sort of policies um, that the Castros and now the subsequent leaders want to, um, but it has really limited the ability of Cuba to grow and to attract investment in any meaningful way. Uh, in Iran, you know, we've seen uh, sanctions haven't stopped Iran from moving towards its nuclear uh, agenda, but they have stopped it from having an industrial base of any other size. Um, and in Russia's case, you know, sanctions never stopped Russia uh, from threatening Ukraine, Putin ultimately from invading, you know, not only in 2014, um, when sanctions were already threatened before the invasion, um, but then escalating his aggression after, even though sanctions continued to ratchet up um, uh, in a non-linear way because of sort of the crises that went on in U.S. politics in between, but nevertheless in a way that included clear signaling, uh, particularly once um, Biden um, uh, became president again, uh, that, you know, that uh, failed to um, deter him or affect his decision making. But now the existence of these sanctions cutting off the Russian central bank and so much of its financial system uh, from around the world, as well as the sanctions on its um, uh, energy trade, uh, you know, those really do affect the Russian state's ability to wage the war uh, and are effective sort of sanctions capable. Uh, are effective tools for targeting a state's capacity. Uh, and when it comes to China, you know, um, obviously a lot of sanctions have been used and trade measures as well already um, that uh, I don't see some, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say this, you know, too glibly, but um, I don't think that the U.S. has, um, you know, too much hope, whether one is Democrat or Republican, uh, it doesn't seem to be the same way that we once had this fantasy of, oh, we can win Russia back and bring it back in. That doesn't seem to exist with regard uh, to, to the debate around China. And it does seem that on both sides, there's a lot more of a view uh, that sanctions should be in, and other restrictions, whether they be tariffs or um, uh, limits on, on the sale of certain computer chips to China. 
uh, that those are really far more focused on the state capacity side. Um, of course, China may you know react even more aggressively to some of them, and I don't think sanctions are a, a solution that can um, fix everything. Uh, but yes, I think that you know a lot of for you know in particular Beijing um, now there is a key desire to potentially. Es- um, accelerate some of its efforts to, to move away from dollar uh, dependency, even though they don't think they'll be realized in the short term, uh, to keep the U.S. Uh, ability to impose those kind of measures um, uh, low or at least to uh, restrict uh, their pressure. Um, but, you know, I think it should be understood, that, you know, the Russian and Chinese opinion on these matters is uh, – in my view, very different. Russia, I think, has decided uh, under Putin, um, and when I say Russia, I primarily in these cases mean Vladimir Putin. I, I don't want to um, cast all the Russian people as, as guilty of his crimes, and I think there's been a lot of uh, failure to distinguish between the two uh, in the debates over the last year and a half. But uh, Putin's agenda really is to destroy the international economic order, whereas China's agenda is to replace the U.S. as the core node or at least to displace it as a top uh, the international um, economic order. And so Russia is far more aggressive in its moves than uh, China is, as I said earlier, even with regards to um, Russia, we've seen some Chinese, uh, you know, compliance uh, with the sanctions regime that I think people wouldn't have expected um, initially. Uh, so they're they're very different um, paths. Uh, but of course, you know, that's something that I think is so important to raise uh, because if we fail to make that distinction on the U.S. policy debate side and we push China fully into Russia's corner, uh, then that's you know very much uh, not in our interest. So let's get into some of the more nuanced and technological aspects that we're seeing that are really taking a hold in finance. Starting off would be crypto and decentralized finance. There was a point within, you know, 2020, 2021 where it seemed like every venture capital firm was looking to invest in anything that was decentralized finance or crypto. The crypto markets were continuing to scale and for some people it was the best investment you could make at that time. And then everything fell down a steep hill. However, there's still some beck and some calls where people talk in the background saying this is the future of finance. So how do you see that? How do you view crypto on guess a macro level and a micro level? And do you ever see it being a reasonable competitor to the US dollar? Um I applaud the gumption and the bravery of those who have made a lot of money uh, dabbling in the crypto markets, Um, but I don't think uh, that any uh, of those that I've spoken to or heard on other podcasts or other forums have ever displayed a good understanding of what you need in a currency system and what you need uh, to be not only a a store of reserve, but a unit of account, Um, and that a lot of it is trading magic beans or at best um, collectible cards. Uh, So, you know, as nice as some of the and impressive as some of the DeFi protocols and technologies and these sort of automated, um, you know, uh, systems 
present themselves as. Of course, you know, the probably the most successful one that claimed to be, you know, algorithmic was Luna and TerraCoin, which caused, you know, billions and billions in losses um, to all those who didn't, um, you know, pull their money out uh, in time, including some, you know, very prominent, you know, established New York City uh, investors who, you know, I won't mention by name, but one of them famously got a giant tattoo of the Luna and TerraCoin logos uh, on him and, and uh, has had to eat a little humble pie since. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, firstly, you know, we should talk separately about, you know, other coins, shit coins, as they're known, apologies, um, and, uh, you know, sort of Bitcoin, um, and which is that, you know, on the sort of shit coin side, none of them are, you know, represent any of, of the uh, tools that can be necessary. But, of course, because uh, they're sometimes untraceable, I think that's often overblown, um, but particularly, uh, you know, we saw a lot of U.S. action uh, already over the last year against what I think was called Twister, and I might be getting it wrong, some other tornado name, um, that, uh, you know, essentially mingled cryptocurrencies to be able to disguise, you know, which ones you ended up with uh, so that you couldn't track them via the blockchain. Um, but, yes, that certainly helped money laundering um and you know we've seen examples of uh, russian uh, businesses using that to try to get around sanctions uh in certain examples but uh, you know it, whether it sort of you know that's the same as putting your money into a stolen painting that is you know valuable and smuggling it abroad and then reselling it for um you know cash slightly uh, elsewhere without the proper papers uh, right that's not new and no matter how much the rate of fine art or jewelry stealing goes up, none of that is going to, I think, challenge the U.S. dollar system. Um, where there's a slightly different case is Bitcoin. And, you know, we see this both in the Securities and Exchange Commission, the you know, key U.S. regulator for this approach, which is that they don't treat Bitcoin, at least for now, as a security, right? Because a security is a um, tool used to invest in a common project, whether it be a stock or a bond or um, many coins, where, you know, the example is... Uh, Okay, you know, I'm running, you know, my Shiba Inu coin and we're going to have the Shiba protocol and have this and, you know, people actually uh, benefit and make money off it. We saw a lot of the most prominent sort of podcasters in this uh, space, the guys from the All In Pod, you know, specifically doing that with Solana and, you know, basically pumping the currency uh, out there and they had gotten access to it at cheaper than market rates. And so they were, you know, just pumping and dumping. And uh, personally, I hope that they're held uh, legally responsible for securities fraud for doing so. Um, but Bitcoin's difference is that, you know, it's not a common project. There isn't, you know, money going to um, the developers of the, the Bitcoin protocol. Um, you know, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto obviously is you know, so unclear whether he even exists. Um, but, uh, you know, the problem with Bitcoin is its fundamental misunderstanding of uh, uh currencies and what makes them possible and effective is its own limit on the amount. I forget exactly how many it is, um, but, you know, eventually Bitcoin miners will no longer be able to mine new Bitcoin. And, you know, it sort of views um, currency very much from a pre, uh, uh, a pre, um, Bretton Woods and a pre-collapse of Bretton Woods and, and sort of gold standard era, whereas, oh, because this is scarce and, 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 um, uh, 
limited that you know we shouldn't um, that, that, that it will retain its value and of course the gold standard era in large part uh, ended because of how much of a limit gold was to investment in international growth uh, and we exist in a world today where at least most economies certainly western economies have free flowing capital uh, we discussed that China doesn't which is crucially important um, but uh, you know people um, that money and money creation and debt creation, as we talked about in the U.S. system, you know, is necessary sometimes. You know, I, I'm a marketeer. I believe in markets, but I believe that sometimes markets go haywire and then the government's role is to step in and to reestablish those markets. Uh, and with Bitcoin, you lose that ability. Um, you lose the ability for a central bank to do anything like set interest rates to um, help manage the economy. If you're an ultra a Hayekian libertarian who believes that, you know, there should be no involvement of any kind of government in any kind of um, uh, uh, currency uh, at any point, then, you know, Bitcoin is probably a thing. But, you know, what's the closest real economy we have in the world to that where the government has no role and no control over money supply and anything is probably Somalia. Right. And like, you know, as much as I love the Somali people and have gotten to spend some wonderful time in the waters off the coast of the country, um, it's not an economic model that the rest of the world wants to uh, be built under. So in, um, you know, short, I think that, you know, crypto advocates fundamentally misunderstand what is in their own um, and what is in the global economic benefit. And while Bitcoin, as long as it's not treated as a security, will probably remain uh, a much more popular collectible and traded instrument. Um, and while these cryptocurrencies do have some real, um, you know, potential areas of concern, uh, um, that, you know, none of them are uh, fundamental alternatives where we get into the real issues and which is why I'm glad to see uh, the SEC stepping up enforcement and personally would like to see it far more uh, is that I do see crypto as a threat to the U.S. national interest and uh, if not because I that's not because I believe it's going to displace the dollar or undermine the dollar system uh, or anything like that but it is because of the interconnection between crypto trading and the dollar and the, the creation of um, what are known as stable coins and particularly things like Tether, um, uh, which have you know grown into the tens and hundreds of billions of dollars in recent years, um, but are you know, as I said, primarily used to trade the equivalent of you know Pokemon cards and, and uh, magic jelly beans. Um, and because they're unregulated, you know, Tether in its case is based in the Bahamas and you know doesn't actually publish um, data on what's upholding its um, supposed uh, peg of you know its cryptocurrency, the you know, US uh, T to uh, the dollar, um, and because to do that, they really need to hold, you know, um, paper assets, ideally good ones um, of uh, companies that are highly liquid and changeable. But then if there is a you know, huge collapse in the crypto market, um, you know, sort of crypto window 2.0, we saw Tether and a few others break their pegs um, at various points uh, in 2021 and early 2022. Uh, at the end of the, sort of that crypto boom that you discussed, uh, then that potentially leads to mass sell-offs in um, other assets, right, including U.S. government paper. Um, so, you know, oftentimes Tether in particular gets 
criticized for saying, oh, you know, well, maybe they don't actually hold as many treasury bills or liquid uh, U.S. Um, currency assets, uh, which are debts, um, as they say they do. And maybe they're actually holding a bunch of high yielding Chinese paper. They always say it's rated AAA, but they don't say if that's from Fitch or S&P or Daguang, which is the, you know, made up Chinese uh, credit rating agency or Accra, the even more ridiculous, silly Russian um, credit rating agency. And I always say, well, if I'm looking at this from a U.S. regulator perspective, I would totally much rather have Tether hold a whole bunch of garbage Chinese paper uh, than U.S. Treasury paper, because at least when the run on Tether finally comes, they won't be tumpering Treasury assets and that won't require um, us to intervene there. And what do we care if they dump a bunch of, um, you know, Chinese uh, real estate loans um, that have promised people the world and you know, already defaulted um, in, uh, or in the process of doing Doing so as that kind of um, uh, collapse goes on. Um, so, you know, this then bleeds into the conversations around, you know, uh, uh, government-backed um, digital currencies, CBDC, central bank-backed uh, digital currencies and like. And um, I think we need to be very careful about the move into it. And I certainly want to see um, them focus far more on the digitization of traditional finance um, than the traditionalization of digital finance, which, as I said, is really a lot of um, Pokemon cards and, and, and uh, other non-valuable um, uh, uh, luxury goods. So how would you see that digitization of centralized finance? Because we, we've we seen some countries starting to, whether it's an investment or even discussions by the Fed of creating their own relative cryptocurrency. Could a country like China create a cryptocurrency or BRICS create a cryptocurrency in a way that solves some of the issues we were discussing earlier of not having a country that's running on a deficit? You know, I, I think the key difference is to talk about what do we mean by a cryptocurrency here, right? Like uh, 90 plus percent, probably 90, closer to 99 percent of U.S. dollar transactions in the world only exist in the digital sphere, right? Whether that be, you know, me sending, you know, uh money to the IRS to pay my taxes in the U.S. from my bank account to uh, the IRS's account, or whether that be, um, you know, me buying something off Amazon or so on and so forth. You know, there's a lot more digital money that exists out there um, uh, than there is actual physical money um, to an order of magnitude. Uh, and in many ways, that already exists. What I'm talking about is CBDCs are basing them on a blockchain system, um, and bringing in some of the innovations uh, from crypto markets, which I think many people who have innovated crypto technologies, you know, will go on and do fabulous things. And uh, it probably just won't be in crypto, but a lot of the technologies and um, tools that they've invented, particularly in DeFi, I see DeFi's sort of markets and structures as a very attractive way to take out um, some of the issues and put things on a more level playing field. So, you know, here in the UK, where I'm based right now, we have a big debate around the London um, Metals Exchange's intervention in nickel markets over the last year and its cancellation of some trades. Uh, and I do think that we could have an attractive alternative to a market like that that's run by DeFi protocols. And so everybody knows the rules. And there's no risk um, that things are going to come in and change them. Sometimes I think you do want that, you know, cold override ability there. So I certainly don't ascribe to 
um, you know, the idea that we should get rid of it entirely, but I certainly think it can improve technology and operations um, already as it exists for, um, you know, in China, there already are um, elements of a, a, a real digital yuan, um, and they're probably slightly further ahead of this than the U.S. With the U.S., it really comes down to um, questions around, um, you know, disintermediating the role between banks and the Federal Reserve, for example. So, you know, the big question that you have, in my opinion, around um, central bank digital currencies is, um, you know, ultimately, why shouldn't people just be able to hold them, you know, directly with the Federal Reserve? But then that affects how much uh, money goes to banks and bank deposits, which, of course, uh, are what banks use to lend out. And I don't think most people, including, you know, certainly the um, libertarian-tinged uh, uh, crypto evangelists would say that they want the um, central bank determining where credit allocation should go, but as structured right now, you kind of have the you know a lot of the money. If it wasn't you know the sort of normal understanding of a central bank digital currency and a blockchain overheld overseen by um, the Federal Reserve, that effectively you would have people depositing money then with the Fed and the Fed determining where uh, to move those deposits out into accounts. And so I you know I, I, that's not something I advocate for, um, but I think it's really going to. You know, central bank digital currencies and, and on this for those who are really interested just yesterday or maybe it was on Monday uh, the Bank for International Settlements which is kind of the central bank for central banks based in Basel, Switzerland um, put out a really interesting white paper the name of which escapes me but um, uh, uh, I haven't even you know gotten through reading it it opens up the after tons of possibilities and for some will be very dystopian and some um, will be you know sort of pointing towards a, a new beautiful um, tech, technological future in which the capabilities of finance are, are, are magnified by its full digitization. Um, but, you know, I think we're very much only at the early stages of that, as long as sort of uh, traditional crypto, as we know it, um, is sort of at the forefront of that conversation, uh, that I certainly um, worry uh, about whose voices are um, getting to policymakers, right? We had Sam Bankman-Fried obviously lobbying uh, tremendously, none of which were things that I think were good for people in the crypto market, for um, the U.S. dollar uh, overall, um, or for uh, financial uh, innovation, but because he had so much money to throw around, people were willing to listen to him. Um, and so I think we're, you know, very early in that we need to approach it maturely and um, uh, slowly rather than think that these are things that we should be looking to um, uh, accelerate or do before it's too late, you know. So much money already is digital and and I, I don't think that, you know, we have a fundamental issue with, you know, no, nobody has ever complained uh, in recent years or what complaints there were were about the costs of, you know, sending money internationally um, and like, you know, that's all been taken care of by, you know, bank challengers. You, know, you have WISE, formerly TransferWISE uh, here, um, you know, you have Zello and, and, and you know, tons of others and uh, PayPal in the U.S. Um, so, you know, sending money digitally uh, around the world has never been easier and continues to get easier and easier. Um, but actually talking about fundamental different ways of accounting and distributing money, um, which a technical cryptocurrency would get us to, uh, you know, I think um, we, we want to be uh, very slow and methodical um, and run lots of fun thought experiments and, and even actual experiments before um, proceeding with any of that. And a lot of you know, it's been a common retirement route um, recently for, you know, uh, Pat Toomey, former senator from Pennsylvania. I heard, you know, maybe six, seven months ago uh, before 
um, you know, the new Congress and before the end of his term. Uh, he was on one of my uh, sort of favorite um, economics podcasts, Bloomberg's Oblots, and he was shilling for crypto and everything. It's like, oh, well, he's going to go get himself a nice lobbying job out of the back of this. Um, but it's certainly something that uh, I, I don't think we should be entertaining um, as uh, national U.S. policy. Well, Max, my man, I really appreciate you coming on today. I, the knowledge you have on this topic is profound, and I really appreciate you coming on and being able to share it and all the networks that you do utilize to share it because I think there's a lot of, and I say this with a lot of different topics I bring on the podcast, so maybe there's a trend there, but some misinformation that that trends around this that stops people from really having an understanding of what's going on and, and feeling comfortable in the situation they find themselves in. So seriously, thank you for everything you do around this topic, for the research, for helping provide and the way that you portray it to people and be able to bring it on a digestible um, platform. It, it, I really appreciate it. I think everyone that listens appreciate it as well. Me. Um, just you know, one last plug for me. Uh, my book, as you mentioned earlier, Economic War, Ukraine and the Global Conflict Between Russia and the West, which talks a lot about uh, these issues, um, and hopefully this has sort of whetted your appetite for, for a read about it, uh, comes out on the 27th of July in Europe and the 1st of September in uh, the United States. If you uh, find me on social media, which you can at least not easiest on Twitter, at uh, Z-A-K-A-B-K-A-Z-A, um, then you can send me a message and I'll send you a copy uh, from Europe uh, with free uh, shipping <laughs> and handling if you want it early. Um, and uh, I'm always open to debate and take on these issues. So if anybody uh, wants to send me a message and tell me how wrong I am, then uh, I look forward to hearing it. And thanks again so much. Absolutely, for my man. That will all be linked down below. So definitely make sure to check it out. And if any of that debate comes up, I'll be glad to host it on this platform as well. We'll definitely get you on later down the road. Uh, for another episode and maybe in person when you're in the U.S. So again, thank you so much. Perfect. Sounds great. Thank you guys.